You are tuning in to On The Money with Dynamic Funds, a podcast series that delivers access to some of the industry's most experienced active managers and thought leaders. We're sitting down to ask them the pertinent questions to find out their insights on the market environment and navigating the investment landscape. Welcome to another edition of On The Money with Dynamic Funds. I'm Mark Brisley, Head of Dynamic, and I'm going to start off to take a quote from one of my guest's recent commentaries, where he said, there's obviously been no shortage of surprises, uncertainty, and unprecedented events in 2020. But you know, as we think about the recent events that have just transpired, the removal, hopefully, of election uncertainty in the US, hope on the pandemic front with positive vaccine news, the current investing landscape of low bond yields and low rate or lower for longer interest rate environment continue to pose challenges for investors and their fixed income allocation within portfolios. So not surprisingly, fixed income investing in this environment generates many questions. How will fixed income markets fare as major central banks reduce monetary easing? Is the 60-40 portfolio still relevant? Are there particular areas where investors should be cautious? And where are the opportunities to find yield in this environment? So for that reason, I'm fortunate to be joined by two gentlemen today that bring more than 50 years of combined experience managing portfolios in the fixed income arena. Romus Budd started in the investment industry back in 1984 and has a widely recognized successful long-term track record with more than 30 years of extensive fixed income money management experience. He's responsible for directly managing about $22 billion of assets and is a member of our core fixed income team that manages close to $42 billion in fixed income assets for the retail, institutional, and private client channels. Also joining me is Derek Amory, who has over 20 years of investment industry experience with a focus on Canadian fixed income portfolio management. Prior to joining Dynamic, Derek spent 16 years as a portfolio manager at HSBC Global Asset Management, the last 11 of those years as the head of Canadian fixed income, where he was directly responsible for over $6 billion in AUM. It's a pleasure to have them both with me today. And I'm going to start with a question for the both of them. And first to Romus. Romus, moving forward, how could the bond markets be influenced by central bank action and government support programs? Just an incredible amount of stimulus that we've seen pumped into the system over the last year. Well, Mark, that's really the big question going forward. As we know, uh, this year, we really have unprecedented government support through the fiscal side. Uh, more direct support of bond markets through central banks, uh, certainly in Canada, more so than we've ever had, because this time around, they're actually buying corporates and provincials uh, to keep spreads in. And we didn't see that in the last recession, even though we saw uh, similar actions uh, to some degree in the U.S. previously. But traditionally, central banks, as we know, uh, keep their eye on short-term rates or adjust short-term rates to respond to demand shortages in the economy to get people to spend, to bring forward spending and demand and improve uh, the economy when we go through a slowdown. This time around, of course, it's been so severe, uh, number one, that they've brought in other tools. And number two, uh, they've gotten rates down to close to zero. So they've had to go elsewhere to ease the system. And that's through quantitative easing, which is buying of a government bond securities. Uh, as I mentioned, they've also gone into provincials, corporates. They may even go to yield curve control. So the big difference this time around is they're not only controlling short-term rates, they're actually also controlling long-term rates up to a certain degree. And as investors, as portfolio managers, that creates 
other challenges going forward. Regardless of where you think yield should be, you have to be aware that the central banks are definitely suppressing interest rates at this time. And Derek, if we think about the same question, but out of view from the corporate side, how do you think markets could be influenced by the same central bank action and government programs? I think it's quite clear based on the current policies and programs that uh, you know central bank action and fiscal policy is going to continue to be you know incredibly influential uh, you know on the bond market uh, for years to come as Romus mentions not, not only on the rate side but also now on the corporate side you know this really started during the financial crisis but as we've seen during the pandemic this year you know the scope and scale of that central bank intervention has really increased dramatically and what we've seen, as Romus alluded to, was that central banks have expanded their toolkits to include corporate bond purchases. And, and you know, while we saw some other major central banks, you know, notably the BOJ and, and the ECB, make such moves earlier in the past decade, you know, it really was the Fed's decision to purchase corporate bonds in March and April that has had and will continue to have, um, you know, the most dramatic impact uh, on financial markets. And when you think about it, you know, it was that the Fed's announcement uh, that they would engage in direct purchases um, of, uh, of investment-grade corporate bonds um, that was one of, if not the main catalyst uh, for the rally in risk assets that we saw. And, you know, more importantly, by signaling that they would use, you know, basically any means necessary, you know, to backstop credit markets, the question now becomes, you know, what will happen going forward? You know, clearly, as we saw during the rally in risk assets this year, you know, credit markets have become very much dependent on and influenced uh, by those central bank initiatives, uh, particularly during, uh, as they say, periods of crisis or severe market turmoil. You know, and, and so I think it's clear that, that central banks will likely be willing to step in again in such periods uh, to support credit markets. Uh, what I, I think, though, that is going to be more interesting and perhaps less clear is what role or level of engagement the central banks will have in more you know normalized market environments. Um, you know the central banks have said that their corporate bond purchase programs that we've seen this year um, are basically kind of emergency measures and not necessarily part of their normal course of business. Um, so it, as I say, it'll be interesting to see how they react uh, to the next downturn in risk assets that's you know not caused by a health crisis. You know, like we saw in late 2018. You know, will they let equities and, and credit markets endure, uh, you know, a more classical bear market, uh, you know, or is the Fed put, you know, always going to be in place um, to stop any sizable declines in, in risk assets, no matter the cause? And so I think that's really the, the question that will be interesting to see how that unfolds. And I would argue that if the experiences of the last 12 years or so are any indication, I think it's going to be quite difficult. Uh, for central banks to, you know, to extricate themselves uh, from their current levels of intervention uh, in the credit market. You know, now that they've gone down the path of, of buying corporate bonds and, and um, directly influencing and supporting the credit markets, um, you know, I think it's going to be difficult for them to remove that support. And so, you know, ultimately, I think that's, that's probably another reason why uh, you want to be bullish credit, uh, you know, over the medium to longer term is that you, you have ultimately what I think will be ongoing support from central banks. There's been a lot of attention on the 10-year yield number, and we've seen recently the U.S. 10-year trading above the range that it's been in really since March. Romus, what does that mean for future bond yields? And, and probably useful to our investor listeners as well is well, why is that important? Right. Well, this is uh, obviously a very uh, timely topic here because people have been watching uh, the 10-year 
yield and actually adjusting somewhat uh, their other financial assets within their portfolios, uh, you know, talking about things like income versus or value versus growth, et cetera, depending on what 10-year bond yields do. Now, in the U.S., we got down to about a half a percent earlier this year into the crisis. Um, most recently, Mark, as you alluded to, we got all the way up to 0.96. A lot of that, I think, was, you know, around election time. Uh, they started, uh, the market started to discount the blue wave, which uh, at this point we haven't had. Uh, mind you, in January, we'll find out about the Senate, but at this time, it still looks like uh, the Republicans will, will keep the Senate by one seat. So uh, assuming that is true, the markets have backed off a little bit and brought rates back down a little bit, down to about 0.85, and in Canada, about 0.7, our rates are a little bit lower. Now, what we have happening, though, is obviously the bond markets are uh, quite expensive from the standpoint, if you look at uh, indicators such as inflation. But as we mentioned earlier on, we have the central banks suppressing interest rates. So it is a bit of a cat and mouse game. But for us as tactical managers, uh, we have looked to reduce our duration target or the price sensitivity of uh, the unconstrained portfolios, for example, uh, the funds such as the tactical bond fund or the ETF, DXB. Uh, we reduced target at the end of August when Canadian rates were uh, much lower, even though we're, you know, we're kind of looking almost with a magnifying glass because rates are so low, but they were under 0.5% at the time when we reduced the target. Now, having said that, our most likely scenario is that we will reduce the target further uh, and bring down price risk, but it's going to depend on a lot of things. And right now, I'd say one of the biggest factors is what happens with fiscal policy coming out of the election and whether monetary policy itself starts to look like fiscal policy, which sounds odd, but we might end up in that situation. If we have a moment to talk about it later, we'll, we'll, we'll perhaps get into it. But the ECB is actually doing certain actions that makes monetary policy look like fiscal. Now, the central banks have generally said, look, we've got rates down to zero in Europe and Japan, we're actually even below zero. There's not a lot more we can do. So it's gonna be up to fiscal, but it is complicated from the standpoint of if we don't get the fiscal for whatever reason, if it's because of Republicans in the Senate, whatever the reason is, uh, then it's not as clear that rates will uh, move up and we may end up closer to a situation that we have in Europe and Japan. Uh, we've taken the path as the most likely is that rates are in a long-term bottoming process, but it's going to take time and there's a lot of other factors that might come into it. We will adjust the portfolios accordingly to the data as it comes in and what happens on the monetary side, the fiscal side, and then the real economy. Derek, if we look at the corporate side, what would you say right now is the risk reward for credit in this environment? I mean, I would say, you know, generally speaking, we remain uh, quite constructive on credit, uh, certainly in the near term. You know, when I look at, um, at the outlook for the sector, uh, you know, I try to do so through, um, you know, typically through three lenses, and that's looking at the fundamentals, uh, the valuations, and the technicals. And so, you know, if I just kind of quickly walk through those three lenses, you know, from a fundamental perspective, while the fundamentals are still weaker than prior to the crisis, uh, you know, they are improving. The macro backdrop, uh, you know, has seen a sharp bounce back uh, from where we were in the March, April, you know, kind of May time horizon. Uh, and while, you know, obviously the speed of that recovery is, is, you know, starting to slow, there's still considerable ground to make up. Uh, I would say kind of the trajectory of the macro uh, outlook is still positive. 
also from a bottom-up perspective, um, you know, similarly credit fundamentals uh, in general, you know, they're softer than they were at the start of the year. Um, you know, obviously with weaker demand, you know, we've has resulted in you know weaker revenues and earnings and, and leverage has increased. And so obviously credit metrics, you know, have deteriorated. But again, similarly to the macro picture, you know, credit fundamentals are stabilizing and look to improve um, as that demand recovery continues. Uh, in terms of valuations, um, you know, they appear to be, I would say, fair to maybe slightly rich, uh, rich based on where we are in the recovery. Credit spreads are tighter um, than where they would typically be during a recession, but obviously we're not technically um, in a recession any longer. Uh, so that, you know, from my perspective, uh, would seem fair. You know, I, I would say that they're, you know, possibly a little bit too tight, um, you know, given where we are uh, in the recovery. Obviously, we're still in the very early stages of the recovery. And so uh, I would categorize valuations as kind of fair to maybe slightly expensive. But having said that, you know, they still remain, um, you know, 35 to 40 basis points wider on average than prior to the crisis. So, I, I, you know, from my perspective, I still think there remains some value in, in the space. And then finally, from a technical perspective, you know, the technical backdrop is where we continue to see uh, the most support for the credit sector. You know, what's been one of the most remarkable elements of the performance of the credit markets this year is how well record levels of supply have been absorbed by the market. You know, we've seen, uh, you know, about 1.7 trillion uh, in new corporate bonds issued in the U.S. on a year-to-date basis. Um, you know, that would be about 45% more than what we saw during the previous record year in, in 2017. You know, outside of a couple of weeks in March, you know, that uh, that new issue supply has been absorbed very well by the market. You know, we've seen um, relatively small new issue concessions. Uh, we've seen uh, new issues perform very well on the break uh, in the secondary market. So, you know, despite a huge increase in supply, um, you know, the demand supply imbalance, um, in my opinion, you know, remains quite strong in credit. And finally, uh, I'll say, you know, you know, the search for yield um, remains a very strong technical driver of demand in credit. Uh, you know, while absolute yields are obviously historically low, uh, you know, on average, uh, corporate bonds in Canada are yielding almost four times that of government bonds. Um, you know, so it's still within the fixed income space, and for fixed income investors, uh, credit remains, um, a, you know, an attractive alternative, in my opinion. Uh, so overall, you know, we like the risk reward relationship in credit at the moment. But having said that, again, we're closely watching, you know, the fundamentals uh, to see if uh, if there is any signs of of deterioration in either that macro environment or or the credit profiles that I that I highlighted earlier. Yeah, and speaking of closely watching. The whole world was watching over the last couple of weeks and continues to on what's happening south of the border. Derek, what is the ramification on the bond market itself and what does that do to impact bond investors? I mean, going into the election, you know, given what we were seeing in the polls and what we saw, you know, in, in the betting markets, you know, financial markets certainly appeared to be pricing in a, a relatively high probability of, uh, of that democratic sweep. That uh, that Romus alluded to with with the Biden administration and a, and a democratically controlled Senate, uh, I would say you know the next most likely scenario that that the market was anticipating was was a Biden presidency, a Republican controlled Senate, and Democrats continuing to to control the House of Representatives. You know, obviously at this point it would appear uh, you know that the latter is the outcome that we're dealing with. Obviously, uh, you know it's still yet to be confirmed, and there are still two upcoming Senate runoff elections in, in Georgia, but it's certainly widely expected that the Republicans uh, will retain their, their slight majority in the Senate. 
So, you know, it looks like the U.S. is headed uh, for a divided government in January. Uh, so in terms of the potential ramification for bond investors, you know, starting with the rates market, you know, the consensus view and, and sort of market action, as I mentioned, heading into the election was that, you know, the blue wave of both a, of both a Biden presidency and, and a democratically controlled Senate would see more aggressive fiscal stimulus and a larger near-term boost to the economy, which would likely put upward pressure on both equity markets and bond yields. You know, the divided government outcome obviously is now going to be associated with, with expectations for a smaller uh, fiscal support response uh, and should at the margin put less upward pressure on yields, at least in the near term. You know, over the medium to longer term, I would argue that by um, you know, keeping the policy agenda more moderate and, and down the fairway, if you will, uh, a divided government takes many of uh, Biden's more progressive initiatives, such as aggressive tax and, and environmental reforms off the table. So this will likely, you know, be of some comfort to equity investors, uh, at least over the medium term, and ultimately likely, you know, at the margin would, would push yields higher. In terms of the credit markets, um, obviously the outcome of the election has the potential to, to move credit spreads, uh, given the outcome and the waning market optimism uh, over the size of the potential fiscal stimulus package that we could see. Uh, it's, uh, you know, and it's positive outcome on the macro picture. I think that spreads, you know, could move slightly wider here in the near term. Uh, however, if ultimately a, a divided government is positive for risk assets, as I mentioned, uh, I think that that should help to push spreads lower uh, over the medium term. I must say, however, you know, it's uh, the immediate impact of the election on financial markets would appear to have been <laughs> relatively short-lived. Uh, you know, this is obviously due to developments on the on the pandemic taking center stage and and stealing the spotlight. Um, and I think that uh, you know the battle between the near term challenges brought on by the significant deterioration in uh, in the pandemic caseloads and the reinstitution of activity restrictions across the globe, uh, you know, offset by the optimism surrounding a vaccine, have probably overshadowed uh, the election results and, and and kind of dampened. The ramifications that uh, that it might have on the markets and, and on investors. Yeah, the information is moving so quickly, and you know, to steal a comment away from Malcolm Gladwell, uh, a lot of questions around tipping points. Romus, one of the questions that we seem to get pretty frequently is whether or not there's a, a tipping point for the bond market that could maybe result in us seeing rates moving higher. And second to that, what could possibly cause a probability for rates to fall again? Right. Well, as we've been talking clients the last few weeks, one of the kind of sayings that we came up with, uh, took from someone else, so I can't take credit, but uh, I really liked it. It's, is July the new January? Okay. And the thought process behind that is uh, the governments and central banks, uh, most businesses, uh, when we start into this pandemic, into that March, April period, really we thought we'd be through most of it by about January and life would be starting to return to somewhat normal. Now we're already in November, so uh, there's no way January uh, we're going to be seeing anything close to normal. So we would expect it's going to be pushed further out into July. And that's one of the factors that keeps rates suppressed. Okay. But in the meantime, the last couple of weeks, of course, we've got some really good news on vaccines, whether it's Pfizer, I'd actually even think the Moderna one, at least from what I've seen, uh, not being an expert on vaccines, but certainly the, uh, the storage aspect to it, uh, 
uh, requiring these extremely low temperatures. So I think that'll be more widely used or able to be used more widely globally. And does that mean is that the beginning of the end of the pandemic? So that pressures rates in the opposite direction. So we have both pressures happening right now. We've got the central banks trying to keep rates down. We've got fiscal policy that we're not 100% clear on how it's going to uh, shape up from here, but keeping in mind that, as I said earlier, the central banks want to pass that baton to fiscal policy and spending. So if they continue down that path aggressively, I think we can talk about, as we said before, that that rates could be moving up slowly. However, where it gets tricky, and that's for us as active managers, this is where uh, we have to be careful, where we adjust the portfolios and go to where the data takes us, is, as Derek alluded to, if the Republicans keep the Senate, there is a chance that uh, the spending that comes out of the government side, and again, I'm not making any judgment on whether a lot of spending or not a lot of spending is good for the economy or for standards of living. I'm just going with the cards we're dealt as managers. If the Republicans really quash a lot of the spending or other investments in the economy, whether it's into healthcare, whether it's into education, wherever that money goes, uh, whether it's uh, you know cutting back on uh, the student loan forgiveness, for example, all these things. If the Republican Senate uh, really puts a stop to a lot of those programs, that's where we start thinking about heading more into the scenario that Europe and Japan have gotten themselves into. And that is a period of very low interest rates and in fact, odds that rates go even lower and into negative territory. Again, that's one of the uh, reasons it's important for people with many risk assets in their portfolios and their, you know, in their financial portfolios and, and real estate portfolios. If you've got other risks in a portfolio, bonds still help offset that, even though yields are extremely low. If those assets run into trouble, their policy mistakes, we get hit by a pandemic like we did in March, something comes out of left field, uh, then you're going to be very happy to still have those bonds in the portfolio because they act as a Number one, they act as an insurance policy against those other assets, but also as an ability to bring down the volatility of those portfolios and the returns going forward. So we really do have, we are at a bit of a crossroad here. If we really get aggressive on fiscal, we could be seeing the bottom of rates. And I've mentioned that a few times now. If we don't, if that gets uh, short-circuited for whatever reason, uh, then we head towards Europe and Japan. And again, as active managers, we'll adjust the portfolio to where the data takes us. But at this time, our most likely is still a gentle rise in yields over the next couple of years, if not longer. You know, having said that, uh, it's not guaranteed. And another thing I'll just throw in there, Mark, just quickly on that, because people often get worried about the level of interest rates and why hope you know, put money in bonds at this time. Uh, just to realize, along with the insurance aspects and decreasing the volatility of the portfolio and negative correlation when those assets fall, that over a longer period of time, over five years, if rates rise gently, you actually end up with a higher total return in your bond portfolio than you would if rates stayed where they are. The principal gets reinvested at higher rates, the coupons get reinvested at higher rates. So it's not, you know, it's not the end of the world if rates go up 
gently. Now, for each spike up, uh, that's a different different type of issue. Uh, you kind of asked a little bit about that at the beginning of this question. I think the odds of a spike up in rates are pretty low as the central banks would try to mitigate that as much as they can. It really would take something extraordinary like a, a big spike in inflation, I think, where they would start to lose uh, their kind of handle on keeping yields generally lower uh, than the market would without them. But uh, that's the lower odd scenario, I think, of rates spiking up. So at this point, we expect rates to gently rise. We're adjusting the portfolio actively to reflect that. But we cannot take off the table a scenario where rates go sideways or even go lower. So we are at a crossroads. Romus, you talked a little bit about what we now call the 60-40 conundrum. And I think a lot of our listeners would be familiar with that you know, split of 60% equities, 40% fixed income and traditional portfolios. Probably many of them are going through that experience right now. Tons of attention on this subject and due to this lower for longer rate environment and low yields. Maybe one of the most simple questions we hear is, do bonds still matter in a diversified portfolio? You've talked about some of that against you know protecting against risk and, and a long-term view, but what advice do you give to the investor that's thinking they need to assess more closely that traditional asset mix? You know, clearly as yields get lower uh, over time, your upside and price gains uh, and capital gain potential uh, decreases. And what I think I can kind of uh, put into that discussion is what we did see in March, 2020, uh, it's interesting because in North America, we still did see that positive response from government bonds and very high quality corporate bonds where they actually went up in price when equities and other risk assets declined. But in other parts of the world where rates were already negative, we didn't see that impact. They, they acted more like uh, cash securities. So I think the 60-40 question, clearly people uh, should start thinking about it. For the future but the fact that we still have positive yields in north america uh, i think still gives us time uh, to work through that in other words they're still providing that insurance aspect a negative correlation against other assets as long as yields are positive even if they are tiny they're still giving you that protection but if we go down that path into negative yields i think then it's a legitimate question about how you look at your bonds in a diversified portfolio, but I think we're not quite there yet, at least in North America. Derek, I know you have a lot of thoughts as well on this 60-40 conundrum. And you know, one of the other things that's come up as a result of that conversation is the deployment of capital within portfolios to things like alternative strategies, uh, some of which people are going to the extent of calling them a third asset class. What are your thoughts on this area as well? Well, Mark, I certainly think that, that bonds continue to matter in a diversified portfolio. As Romus alluded to, when you look at periods of market turmoil, like we saw in March of this year, you know, bonds and, and, and fixed income assets uh, you know, continue uh, to provide that ballast, that, uh, that hedge, if you will, in a, a balanced portfolio. Um, you know, correlations continue to be low or negative, again, in those periods when, uh, when risk assets uh, are under pressure. So I still think that you know the the traditional portfolio theory in terms of diversification that you get from bonds is still important. 
And to Romus's point, I still think that that maybe is more prevalent here in North America with, uh, with yield levels here that are materially higher than in maybe other, uh, other jurisdictions uh, around the globe. Um, that said, you know, when you look at the traditional role that bonds have played in that, you know, 60-40 portfolio, um, you know, I do think that there are going to be challenges to, to the role that, that fixed income has played. Uh, you know, fixed income has acted as that, as I say, as that ballast, as that portfolio insurance um, in, a, in a balanced portfolio. But what made bonds such a beneficial counterbalance uh, asset in, in those portfolios for investors is the fact that they did have positive expected returns, you know, and a lot of that came from income. And certainly the income part of the role that fixed income uh, has played in that traditional uh, balance fund construct, you know, obviously is going to be uh, is going to be more challenging with yield levels where they are. Uh, so I do think that, you know, it is uh, now the, at the point where investors are going to want to start to look at uh, at alternatives um, and, and how that traditional uh, balance fund construct is going to evolve over time. And I think uh, that there will be um, an important place for you know alternatives as an asset class uh, within what will be, uh, I think, kind of the, the new normal uh, for balance funds going forward. Well, that's great. And gentlemen, thank you very much for these insights. You know, markets are changing more than ever. And of course, for all of our listeners that have joined us today, we really do believe a Dynamica Financial Advisor can help address all your evolving portfolio needs, including those that we discussed today around the fixed income arena. I want to thank you for taking the time to listen. And if there's more information that you'd like to hear about these portfolio managers or any of the offerings that we have at Dynamic Funds, please feel free to visit our website at dynamic.ca. You've been listening to another edition of On The Money with Dynamic Funds. For more information on Dynamic and our complete fund lineup, contact your financial advisor or visit our website at dynamic.ca. This audio has been prepared by 1832 Asset Management LP and is provided for information purposes only. Views expressed regarding a particular investment, economy, industry, or market sector should not be considered an indication of trading intent of any of the mutual funds managed by 1832 Asset Management LP. These views are not to be relied upon as investment advice, nor should they be considered a recommendation to buy or sell. These views are subject to change at any time based upon markets and other conditions, and we disclaim any responsibility to update such views. To the extent this audio contains information or data obtained from third-party sources, it is believed to be accurate and reliable as of the date of publication. But 1832 Asset Management LP does not guarantee its accuracy or reliability. Nothing in this document is or should be relied upon as a promise or representation as to the future. Commissions, trailing commissions, management fees, and expenses all may be associated with mutual fund investments. Please read the prospectus before investing. The indicated rates of return are the historical annual compound total returns, including changes in unit values. And reinvestment of all distributions does not take into account sales, redemption, or option changes, or income taxes payable by any security holder that would have reduced returns. Mutual funds are not guaranteed. Their values change frequently, and past performance may not be repeated.